I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of John. John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Um, as a church, we've been walking through the book of John, and I, I said this last week, but we are now at the point in the book of John where um, I simply cannot recap every sermon. So you're going to have to go and listen to the sermons. They're all online um, from previous weeks. But here's what I can tell you about the, the book of John. The book of John was written so that you might believe. That's what it tells us very clearly at the end of John. The purpose that he wrote is he wrote so that we might believe and that by believing we might have life, have life in his name. And very much so we will see that that, that is what this miracle that we're going to talk about today is talking about, is that we might have life. Uh, last week, as Peter said, that we, we, had, we saw that Jesus came and he called his first five disciples. In the book of John, this is the first time that they met. And uh, these disciples came from different walks of life in different places. And the last disciple was a man named Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's from a town of, Can- of Cana. And that's where the miracle takes place this morning. We'll read through this, and then we'll get into it. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is what God's Word says. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the, ran, when the wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Father in heaven, one more time, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. You'd open up our hearts that we might receive it, and that we might have life in your son's name. Amen. What will you, what will you get... What will your life be like when you finally get the thing that you've been looking for? What will your life be like when you finally get the thing that you have been fighting for, that you've been working for, that you've been striving for? What will your life be like when you finally get that thing? Um, This week I came across a news article uh, from a reporter who had somehow been able to talk to a number of the, the fighters of the Taliban after the Taliban had come to power in Afghanistan. And this, uh, this reporter wanted to find out, what is their lives like now that they've come to power? And uh, there's this one quote that the reporter, that the reporter gave. Uh, it's the, it, it's pretty representative of what all of the, the Taliban who, she, who this reporter interviewed said. And this is what a, a 25-year-old Abdul Nafi says. I sometimes miss the jihad life 
for all the good things it had. In our ministry, there's little work for me to do. Therefore, I spend most of my time on Twitter. We're connected to speedy Wi-Fi and internet. Many Mujahideen, including me, are addicted to the internet, especially Twitter. True story. What will your life be like? What will your life be like when you finally get the thing that you've been fighting for, that you've been working for, that you've been striving for? When the fight is over, what will your life be like? Will it be what you're hoping it would be? Or will you be a distracted monkey on the internet? What will your life be like when you get the thing that you've been fighting for? We are all looking, all of us, everyone here, and all the kids next door who are getting hyped up on sugar right now, don't tell the parents, all of us are looking for the good life. All of us want to know that what we're fighting for, what we're working for, what we're yearning and striving for will be worth it. We're all looking for the good life. And this world tells us that there are a thousand different things that you can give your life to seek out and give your life to find. And yet so often these things lead to disappointment. I remember uh, when I was in college, I, I, I had a, about a million different jobs, as you do when you're in college, and I was just trying to make ends meet. And one of the jobs that I had was delivering high-end luxury retail to, uh, to some of the wealthy people in Chicago. And so um, you, if you go around Chicago, there are these giant buildings and these giant stadiums with all these names from people who've given money to put their name on a building. And these were some of the most successful and powerful people in the city, and they had money that you wouldn't believe. And I got to meet some of these people, and I have never met more of an unhappy lot. What will your life be like when you finally get the thing that you are working for, that you're striving for, that you're uh, yearning for? When I was in high school, I, uh, I was on the wrestling team, and I, I, uh, my senior year, I gave all of my efforts to wrestling. And I, I, I went to the gym five, six days a week, and I, I ran, and I, I, I tried to make sure I was in my weight class, and I did everything that I was supposed to do, and I just remember, I finally, I had placed in state my senior year, and I, it was this big accomplishment that I'd been working so hard for for so long, and I just remember driving over the hill back into my hometown about four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and the, the sun was setting over the hill, and I just remember feeling so empty. What will your life be like when you finally get the thing that you are looking for? Maybe you say, well, I'm not searching after the, every, what everybody else says is valuable. I'm just going to define the good life for myself. That I'm just going to define ultimate purpose. I've got to go out and get what works for me, and I'll let everybody else do their own thing. And to which I would say, good luck, lovingly, because you can't even figure out what you want for dinner And you're going to try to spend all of your effort trying to define what is good and ultimate, what is the the infinite, eternally satisfying thing. And I I just say good luck. Because there is a good life, and the good life cannot be found in any of those things. The good life can be found in Christ alone. And we'll see in our passage today, this is a miracle, a true historical miracle that is telling us and communicating to us um, what the good life is and how Christ gives it. And so uh, today what we're going to do is going to be a number part sermon. So I'm going to kind of do an overview of this miracle, what happens in this miracle. And and then I'm going to talk about what the good life is 
how Jesus gets us the good life and how we can receive the good life. What the good life is, how Jesus gets the good life, and what, how we can receive the good life. So here's what happens in this miracle. There's this, you've got to start out by understanding that there is a wedding in Cana of Galilee. This is a big deal. A wedding is a big deal in the ancient world. You see, the, the, the young couple, they would get betrothed, and then for about a year, a young man would go and he'd build a house, sometimes put it onto his father's house, and he would save up as much money as he could to prepare for, the, for their future marriage. And one of the things that he would save up to do was to throw a big party, to throw a wedding. And this wedding would be a week-long affair. And you'd invite, you'd invite all the friends over, and everyone would have a great time, and there'd be, uh, it, it would just be a time of celebration. And the young man was trying to show everyone who was there, yeah, I can take care of my bride, that I can take care. This is what, so for you fathers of daughters, this is a good thing to do. You get the young man to save up money for a year and throw a big party. It's biblical. And that's what, that's what we see. That's what we see is happening here. This young man, he throws a wedding. And so it's not a surprise that people from all over the region, including from Nazareth, where Jesus is from, and he probably has family connections somehow to this person, and he gets invited to this wedding. And the wedding proceeds this way. It says, on the third day, it's probably the third day of the week, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. I love this next three verses. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, and this is not a trick in your translation. Okay, This is actually as cold as it sounds and impersonal. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is an odd exchange between Jesus and his mother. It's an odd exchange. I, I've looked at a number of commentaries, and I've looked at a, uh, a number of, uh, listened to a number of sermons to prepare for this, and uh, I haven't quite found exactly, precisely the correct, what, what just seems right to me, what is happening in here. And, and so there's an odd exchange between Jesus and and uh, and his mother. And I, I don't know exactly what to do and what to make of it 100%. And so I just want to say a couple of things about this. One, this is one of the ways that we can tell this is an eyewitness account. There's a number of kind of signals as we're reading through the Gospels that this has the ring of eyewitness account. If this was an account, a miracle that was just made up, then the dialogue would read a lot more smooth than it does here. I'm just saying. But this is very true to life. That this is kind of abrupt and there's subtext and layers of meaning. That's what this is what conversation really looks like. So this is one of the ways that we know that this is eyewitness account. That's number one. Number two, I think it's fair to say, and you see this a number of times throughout the gospels, including later in the Gospel of John. Sometimes Jesus had a complicated relationship with his mother and his brothers. I have brothers. If my brother was perfect and never did anything wrong, I would have a complicated relationship with him too. Just saying. Sometimes in the gospel, you see that, that Jesus has a somewhat complicated relationship with his family. 
And I just want to say this is not the main point of the sermon, and so I don't want to make too big of a deal out of this. But if you sometimes have a complicated relationship with your family, this should be encouraging to you. Because Jesus became one with us, and he partook of everything that we are yet without sin. And what should further be encouraging to you is that Jesus makes this right. He reconciles at the cross. John tells us later, John 19, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So if you have, at times, a complicated relationship with your family, and I have to believe that Jesus can, in all the different ways that our family works its way out, make that right at the cross, just like he did with his own family. That should be encouraging to you. So, going back to the story, the wine runs out. Again, this is a big deal. Because Jesus, because this young man has just spent a whole year proving to everybody, I can take care of my bride. And the wine runs out in the middle of the party. What is being implied by that? Is it that he can't plan? Is a little bit foolhardy potentially? That he can't actually take care of the bride? That the, fa- the family could potentially be insulted? Their social standing could be decreased. You can see how this can affect, this can be a domino effect throughout their lives, potentially. Their economic relationships with other people in the community could be damaged. Their family relationships. You can see how this could be like a, a, big, a big deal. And you can see how this could bring a lot of shame onto the family. And so this is a, this is a big deal. This is a, a real hardship, a real embarrassment. And notice here how the first public miracle Jesus does is to help, that, help out the situation. The first public miracle Jesus does is to redeem the situation. Jesus is not opposed to marriage. Jesus is not opposed to having uh, a good time. He's not, he's not a, he, Jesus dignifies all of these things by being present at it. So we see in verse 6, the story continues to build. It says, Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And so each one of those holding 20 or 30 gallons, if you figure there's six, that's going to be somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. That's about the size of this baptistry, if you're wondering. So just think that that's what he does, okay? Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Take it to the MC, the, the steward, the butler, who's going to be handling all of this. So they took it. You should just, I'm going to put this here, file it in your mind, we'll come back to it. This was the master of the feast's job. To make sure there's enough for everybody at the party. This is his job, and Jesus is doing it. Okay, we'll come back to that. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. Everyone takes the stuff off the top shelf and serves it out first, liberally and generously. And then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, the stuff in the boxes. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So the, the master of the feast says, everybody else, they bring out the good stuff first. And then when everyone has just, they're not really paying attention, then they bring out the, the not as high quality stuff. But you've done the opposite. You have, you have brought out the good wine last. And notice how this miracle that Jesus does is not a public miracle, but he does it for his glory. Uh, he does it for his disciples primarily. So his disciples see this, but not everybody knows what's going on. Certainly the master of the feast doesn't know. And, and this is, it tells us, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, it, when you're reading this, you kind of get the sense that there are a lot of layers to this. There's a lot of layers to this miracle that Jesus does. There are a lot of things going on in this story. So, what all is going on? Well, you have to understand your Old Testament to understand all the stuff that's happening in this. In the Old Testament, wedding, the the imagery of wedding, was used to describe the New Covenant, the time when God would come and make all things new. So, for example, we see in Isaiah 54, says this, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, and be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In the overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Says in Isaiah 62, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So by doing this miracle at a wedding, Jesus is signaling that he's going to bring in the new covenant. But there's even a stronger note here, because again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, the idea of wine flowing... The idea of, uh, of new wine, fresh wine, good wine, is used to symbolize the inbreaking of the new covenant. So it says this in Hosea 14, 7. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like, gr- like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. And in Joel 3.18, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall, bring, uh, shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. In Amos 9.13-15 it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. 
I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make their make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Jeremiah 31.12 says, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Psalm 104, 14 through 15 says, You shall cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the hearts of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. And lastly, Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So what is happening here is that by turning the water into wine, Jesus is signaling that the new covenant is coming. That I'm going to bring about ultimate life. I'm going to bring about the new covenant. I'm going to bring about ultimate fulfillment. I'm going to bring about abundance. I'm going to take what is mundane and old and boring, and I'm going to make it into something new. I'm going to bring about the new covenant, and I'm going to give life. Jesus is telling us that he is coming to to give life and to give abundance. Jesus is, says that explicitly in the Gospel of John. He says this in John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It says in John fifteen eleven. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. But now I am coming to you, John 17, 13 says, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled. So this miracle is signaling to us that Jesus is going to bring about life and abundance and joy and he's going to bring about fullness, that Jesus is bringing about all these things that have been promised in the Old Testament. And maybe you say, that sounds kind of prosperity gospel-ish, Matt. That sounds kind of like you're saying that Jesus is just going to make my bank account full and he's going to take away all my diseases and that, he's gonna, he, that you're saying that Jesus is just going to give me all these earthly blessings. And if I was saying that, you would be right to disagree with that. But the point of what Jesus is saying is that I will give you the full life. I will give you the abundance of life. I will give you true life because I am true life. This, this miracle, um, of it rings so truly of what Jesus will say later in John 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. The abundance that Jesus is going to bring, the the new life that Jesus is going to bring, the, the rich and full life, the life of joy and happiness, is Christ himself. It's not found in temporal other goods. Jesus is the good life. He is the life of abundance. He is the the new covenant come true. All of this is found in him. And this is a joy that outlasts even sorrow. Jesus will say later in John 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus is saying, the life that I come to bring, the the abundance that I'm ushering in, the fullness that I'm going to give, is a life that lasts in the midst of death. It's a joy that stays in the midst of sorrow. It's a fullness that comes in the midst of emptiness. In her great book, Suffering in the Heart of God, Diane Lingberg tells about... uh, how she went to Egypt to help the Egyptian Christians that are there. And she went to Cairo. And Cairo is a huge city, 10, 15 million people. And in the eastern part of the city, that is where many of the Christians live, uh, that live in Cairo. And in that part of Egypt, the Christians are kind of the underclass, they're the lower classes. And so she, and one of the jobs that the Christians traditionally have there is they're trash collectors. And so she went to stay with the Christians there who literally live in the dumps of Cairo into a part of the town that they call Garbage City. And and she goes there and she walks. She walks through the city and she can hear the buzzing of flies and smell the stench of the sewers. And she can see the, the brokenness of the people who grow up in that place. And then she says, in the middle of in the middle of Garbage City, there are these churches that take place in natural amphitheaters that are in sandstone amphitheaters. And you go into them, and they are as stunning and as gorgeous as any cathedral that you'll walk into. Christians, this feels like garbage city sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, you don't have to be a pastor very long to see the the brokenness of this place and the wicked, cruel things that humans do to one another and the selfishness that often drives so many of our motivations. And and to even look down into our own hearts and you can see the the brokenness in our own hearts and the way that we sin against one another. And and, and yet for all of the, the garbage that it feels like we live in, for all of the oppressive stench and the flies buzzing and all the brokenness of this place, There is beauty in Garbage City. There is joy in the midst of sorrow. There is life in the midst of death. There is fullness in the midst of emptiness. And Jesus is that life. He is that joy. He is that fullness. Jesus is saying, through this miracle, this is what I'm coming to do. I'm coming to give you myself. And it will be a joy that is never ending. 
and a fullness that never runs out. Jesus is, is in essence saying, yeah, the master of the feast, remember him? That was, <laughs> this is his job to make sure all there's enough wine to make sure that everybody's happy. I'm the true master of the feast. And I will preside over a feast that never ends and over a sacrifice that keeps on giving and over a people that is glad. Jesus, how, what is the good life that Jesus gives us? It's himself. Now, the question is, how does he get us that good life? How does, how does he get that for us? How does he give us beauty in Garbage City? One of the weird things about this miracle is the way that Jesus does this. He dumps the, he has them fill up water and purification jars. Did you notice that? If you're the son of God, can't you just make water appear? Can't you just have a spring run out of the ground and it'd be filled with wine? Like, why the purification jars? Well, in, in the Old Testament, the, these jars were used to, to wash after anything that would make you unclean. So if you, after you touched something that was dead or, or various, various uncleannesses, whenever you became unclean, you'd have water that you'd purify yourself with. And so they would make these jars that would hold enough water so you could purify yourself. So when Jesus says, when Jesus uses these purification jars to to bring forth wine, what he's saying is this fullness of life, this abundance, this goodness, this true life, that it only comes through a purification. It can only come if we've been purified, if we've been made clean. And the Gospel of John teaches the only way to be made clean is through the death of the Son. It tells us in John 13, Jesus said to them, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean or pure. And you are clean. It'll be a little bit more explicit in the letter of 1 John, where it says this, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses or purifies us from all sin. Or this word, or this verse that we say often here, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us or to purify us from all unrighteousness. The only way that you and I can enjoy this fullness of life that Christ brings the only way that we can enjoy true abundance, true life, true joy is if we've been purified of our sins. Is if, as Scripture says, our sins are, and as we sang a minute ago, are nailed to the cross. If, if the guilt and the weight of, of our shame is put upon the Son and He becomes a curse for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. And not only that, but if the sin that is dwelling in us is itself put to death, only then can we enjoy the fullness of life. And thankfully, the death of Jesus does both. Romans 6 tells us this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. By Jesus' death, 
we are purified so that we can enjoy the good life. That by Jesus' death, we are purified so that we can enjoy true joy, true abundance, true fullness, who is Christ himself. Maybe you wonder, well, how do I get that good wine? How do I get that good life? How do I get that abundance? Well, it tells us very clearly here in verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. The only way that you and I can enjoy that good life, the only way that we can receive that good wine, is if we believe in him. And I think in this way, this miracle functions as a parable. It's a true historical event, don't hear me wrong, but it tells us something about what true faith is and what unbelief is. Look at verse, look at verse 10 there. I think, it's, I think it's about one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. If what Jesus is saying is that I am the good wine, I am the good life, I am true abundance, I am true joy, then that means that these people who are at the wedding are so drunk and inebriated and intoxicated with the goods and the pleasures of this life that they can't enjoy him. That's what unbelief, in a sense, is. It's when we become drunk and intoxicated and inebriated and overfilled on the shoddy imitations of the good life, that we can't enjoy the true life himself, that we can't enjoy the true life. But if that's what unbelief is, then what belief is, is in the words of Psalm 34, 8, to taste and know that he is good. It is to taste and to know and to enjoy him. Belief, unbelief is to be too drunk and too intoxicated and too inebriated with all the pleasures of this world that we can't understand who he is. But true faith then is to taste and to know that he is good, that he is not a shoddy imitation, that he is the real deal, that he is life himself. So as, as we turn to apply this scripture, I want to ask you a question. Are you too intoxicated and drunk and inebriated with the pleasures of this world to enjoy the good stuff? to enjoy the good life, true abundance, true fullness? In other words, are the insecurities and the pleasures and the good life that this world will offer for you, have they too captivated your imagination? Have they too captivated your loyalty? Have they too sunk their teeth into your faith that you can't enjoy the good wine, the good life? I think that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. And if that's true of you, and to a degree, I think it probably is true of all of us, what we need to do is to taste and to see that he is good. 
that he is the good life, that he is true abundance, that he is true fulfillment. Which leads me to another question. Back in, in back when my last pastorate, um, one of the songs that we used to sing is a song that maybe is a little bit too upbeat for the Frozen Chosen. It's a song called Are You Washed? Love this song. So it goes like this. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? When the bridegroom cometh, will your robes be white? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Will your soul be ready for the mansions bright and be washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed in the blood and the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? I wonder this morning, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you been purified? Have you been cleansed? Have you received Him as your Savior? Have you nailed your cross to the tree? Have you nailed your sins to the cross? Have you put your curse upon the tree? Have you put his blood over your doorpost? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? And if you're not, we would love to talk with you about what that looks like. You can come and talk to me after the sermon. All it means is that you confess your sins to him. Say, Jesus, here's all of me. Here's all my shame, all my mess, all my sin, all the things that I've done wrong that I shouldn't have done, all the things that I know I should have done right that I didn't do. And you take all of him all his forgiveness, all his abundance, all his fullness. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? I would love to talk with you about that. If you want to talk more about that and you don't want to talk to me, one of the requirements that we have when people become members here is we like to talk to them about what the gospel is. And so just find a member of this church and they would love to share with you what it means to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. I would also say this as we are applying this and we're thinking about what it means that Jesus is the good life. We should cultivate a taste for the good life. That we should cultivate a taste for Jesus. You guys have heard me tell this story many times, or heard me say this many times, but many of you know I, I can be a coffee snob. And so I don't, you know, I, I, I don't like things like cream in the coffee or, or sugar because that's not how God created it. But when I started drinking coffee, I would start with those little church cup styrofoam coffee, you know, and the kind of instant, I'm not even, and pour in a bunch of cream and a bunch of sugar. And as I grew up, I left childish ways behind me, and I got my taste buds cultivated to the good stuff. Like Christian spiritually, that's what has to happen for us. 
that more and more we should cultivate a taste for the Lord, more and more we should be gravitating towards His Word and towards prayer. That we, we should more and more force ourselves sometimes to, to come to church and to sing the songs so that more and more our affections desire and delight in Him. That more and more as we get into His Word, that, that we find ourselves loving Him even more and more. We should cultivate a taste for true life, for Christ himself. And finally, I want to say this. I want to say this encouragement. Because I know, I know how hard this life can be. I know how much guilt and loss can rack the soul. I know all of these things, but I believe this is true, and I've found it to be true, and Many people in this room would tell you this is true. There is beauty in Garbage City. In the brokenness of this life, in the sorrow of this life, in the emptiness and in the loss of this life, there is gain. And that gain is found in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son so that we might find life and find it abundantly in his name. Father, we want to be a people who sees the things that you see. We want to be a people who loves the things that you love and who longs for the things that you long for. We want to be a people who loves your son like you do. So I, I trust and I pray that you would use this sermon to that end. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know what it means to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, Father, would you give them the boldness and the courage to to come before your son and to take hold of him by faith? Would you give, give them the courage to maybe grab somebody aside and say, hey, are you a member? I, I want to know what it means to put my faith in you. Father, I pray that you would help all of us to know what it means to cultivate our life and our, our affections and our taste buds for your son. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen.